0: A FEW STEELWORKERS
1: WHO ONCE WORKED AT WARREN'S BLAST FURNACE GATHERED THIS MORNING TO WATCH IT COME DOWN.
2: 40 YEARS AGO, THIS COMING TUESDAY, MARKS THE BEGINNING OF THE END OF THE STEEL DOMINATING THE YOUNGSTOWN AREA'S ECONOMY.
1: THERE ARE NO LONGER SMOKESTACKS, AND MUCH OF IT IS COVERED BY VEGETATION. OKAY. HOW YOU DOING?
3: I'M OKAY. HOW ARE YOU
1: DOING? Nah, IT'S DEPRESSING GETTING DOWN HERE, TO BE HONEST WITH. You. YOU CAN'T TALK ABOUT THE MAHONING VALLEY AND NOT TALK ABOUT THE STEEL and manufacturing
4: them smokestacks reaching like the arms of god knew.
5: KBOO programming is made possible by KBOO member listeners and support from PDX Pendable stage and studio supplies. PDX Pendable sells and rents to film and theater productions, from gel and globes to paint and lights, featuring the latest airy LED lighting. More information available at 503-887-5880 and at pdxpendables.com.
0: You're listening to an archival KBOO radio show from the Tape Vaults times, dates, and events heard on this recording are no longer relevant or have already occurred in the past. You're listening to a Humankind special, Ida B. Wells' battle to uncover the truth. I'm David Freudberg.
6: At first, she had trouble getting people to believe her. It was such an outrageous, that this lynching was was going on with impunity.
0: This is the true story of a fearless journalist whose life was threatened by terrorists while she revealed the truth, and of the broader events she investigated. Her name was Ida B. Wells. She survived the threats, published widely, and passed away in 1931 her efforts are finally gaining recognition.
4: There weren't a lot of templates uh, for what I wanted to do. I didn't grow up seeing any ideas or any examples of black women investigative reporters.
0: Nicole Hannah-Jones is a correspondent focusing on racial injustice for the New York Times magazine. She led the 1619 Project, which recognizes 400 years of slavery in the Americas. Ever since first learning about Ida B. Wells, Nicole was emboldened to pursue her own journalism.
4: To think of someone who's born into slavery, who is uh, living in a time where women didn't have the right to vote, black people had gotten the right to vote but were struggling to actually use that right to vote, that she's a suffragist, that she's a civil rights activist, that she's like an investigative reporter who has the courage to like go into places where they have literally just strung black people up and killed them and ask questions. She stuck with me ever since then. Well,
7: there's probably no one who did more uh, to illuminate the shame and disgrace of lynching in America during that period than Ida B. Wells. Brian
0: Stevenson directs the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, Alabama. In 2018 his organization dedicated a memorial to the thousands of victims of lynching. He has long recognized the legwork of Ida B. Wells to document this dark chapter of American history.
7: Extraordinary in her courage, her willingness to say things and uh, to identify the heart of the problem. You know there were A handful of people who, as a result of education, were capable of seeing and understanding things that a lot of people couldn't see and understand. Ida B. Wells uh, could read anything and she consumed information from all kinds of sources uh, to to gain a perspective on the problem that was much more comprehensive, uh, much more nuanced uh, than a lot of other folks. Ida Wells was
0: born to enslaved parents on a plantation at Holly Springs, Mississippi in 1862 as the Civil War raged. Her father, James Wells, a carpenter, became politically active after the war as a freedman in central Mississippi during Reconstruction, a role model for Ida as she eventually confronted the terrorism of lynching.
8: The Afro-American is not a bestial race. If this work can contribute in any way towards proving this and at the same time arouse the conscience of the American people to a demand for justice to every citizen and punishment by law for the lawless, I shall feel I have done my race a service. She, unlike
7: uh, some emancipated uh, black folks, uh, decided to speak very critically of what was going on. Uh, There were people who uh, encouraged her to be less vocal about it, and she said, I won't. And you have to admire and be incredibly inspired by someone who takes seriously uh, this idea of speaking truth uh, to power. And that's what's unique about Ida B. Wells' writing.
6: One of Ida's uh, recollections was her father was illiterate, but he would ask her to read the newspaper to him and to his friends. His friends would gather around uh, and ask her to read the newspaper to them
0: a lesson in the power of information and of the press. Paula Giddings, professor of Africana Studies at Smith College, is author of Ida, A Sword Among Lions, the major biography of Ida B. Wells.
6: The aha moment for her is when a very good friend of hers by the name of Thomas Moss is lynched in Memphis, Tennessee. In her early
0: 20s, Ida had moved north to Memphis to be with family. About a decade later in 1892, the brazen slaying there of Thomas Moss would profoundly horrify Ida Wells.
6: And Thomas Moss uh, is no criminal. He's a, very, he's a virtuous Memphis citizen.
0: And he was operating a store.
6: He was operating a store called the People's Grocery. By night he by day, he was a postman, and that 's how he and Wells met because he was on her route while, when she was a newspaper editor became very good friends in fact, she was the godmother for his baby he and his wife 's child, yeah. youngest child, and that people 's grocery, which was a symbol of so much that was going on with blacks and blacks economic development in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, was competing with a white store in the area. And the white proprietor took advantage of some racial tension in the area to bring sheriffs to that to the area and there are a number of racial scuffles took place including a shootout but in the end um, Thomas Moss and two men in the people's grocery are blamed for much of the problems and they're in they're jailed even then It's assumed that they'll have a trial. They said that they were shooting in self-defense, which they were. Uh, But on the night of March 9th, something like 75 masked men, uh, white men, the judge of the criminal court was among them, come into the jail, snatch out the three men, Thomas Moss and two of the men working in the grocery, take them out into an abandoned railway yard, And just horribly torture them uh, and brutalize them and kill them.
0: And this horrible incident, she later wrote, changed the whole course of my life. In what sense did this redirect her?
6: Well, for her, anti-lynching becomes a crusade. And this becomes the center of her life It makes her from a a common journalist to an investigative journalist because she's determined to get to the root of what's really going on.
0: Originally employed as a school teacher, Ida Wells began her journalistic life writing for African-American newspapers in her early 20s, including articles about Jim Crow discrimination. Her first salaried position was for $1 per week with a Baptist publication. By age 29, Ida became part owner of the Memphis Free Speech newspaper, which would reach an audience of black readers.
8: I had an instinctive feeling that the people who have little or no school training should have something coming into their homes weekly, which dealt with their problems in a simple, helpful way. So I wrote in a plain, common-sense way on the things that concerned our people. She hoped
0: to help satisfy the thirst for learning by the formerly enslaved population.
6: Ada's mother, uh, who was illiterate, uh, went to school with her children, you know, to learn to read the Bible these people coming from all over, just walking to these schools, and kids and their parents and their.
0: The floodgates have opened.
6: The floodgates have opened. Uh, her father. What, what was,
0: a glorious thing it, it was must have been. It was wonderful,
6: and in places like you know, Ida was a teacher in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, in the public schools in Memphis, the black public schools. Uh, the uh, the attendance rate for blacks was higher than whites in the in the in the public schools. It was this hunger.
0: But the free speech also provided an ongoing forum for investigations by Ida Wells into the barbarism of lynching. This pattern of thousands of atrocities came to be known as the Southern Horrors, but also occurred in other regions, and she was able to compile details of the widespread practice of smearing the victims, who were often falsely accused of rape, as a pretext for wanton murder. Wells biographer Paula Giddings.
6: First of all, you know, she's small. She's like about five feet tall. She's a tiny woman. And she starts just traveling alone. She's traveling to the sites of lynchings. She's uh, interviewing eyewitnesses. She begins to put together statistics and also use statistics of other organizations like the Chicago uh, Tribune was actually also looking at lynchings and and, and, had, and were publishing statistics. And she showed, and statistics is a relatively new innovation in this uh, period of time, but she knew that she had to use more than opinion uh, to, to have actual evidence of what was happening.
0: So is she able to search through... Through specific documents in order to uncover this evidence. Yes,
6: there are documents. Uh, there's also she also called newspaper reports from all over uh, the country. Police well, reports. Well, there, there are police records, and lots of newspapers, uh, newspaper records, and she found that not even a third of blacks who were lynched were even ac- even accused of rape, much less guilty of. It.
1: We now know from deep study of this, uh, from the 1880s on through into the early 20th century, that the vast, vast majority of the claims of rape or sexual abuse, uh, harassment, that we'd use a term like harassment today, made against black men, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of black men, from the 1880s into the early 20th century, were fabrications. Yale University historian David Blight. Uh, lies, as Frederick Douglass called it, or excuses, as Frederick Douglass called it, for a much larger need for social control. The fear in the white Southern mind is that you had to get control of black people in this new society, because they're growing in leaps and bounds. The old theories that black folk were going to die out as a race, it was more than a theory, I mean, the people really believed this, they were going to die out after emancipation. They wouldn't be able to control themselves and so on. Not happening at all. The black population more than doubled in 30 years in the South. And there's an assertiveness, especially in the next generation, the younger generation, who like today. They they don't want to take it. And if a black guy uh, said the wrong thing to a white woman on the street or uh, a black guy was assertive toward his employer... White employer. White employer... Uh, he was in danger, uh, and especially if, if it could be alleged in some way that he had assaulted, abused, or whatever, uh, a white woman. Ida B. Wells.
8: A leading journal in South Carolina openly said some months ago that it is not the same thing for a white man to assault a colored woman as for a colored man to assault a white woman, because a colored woman had no finer feelings nor virtue to be outraged. It's hard for us to entirely
1: get our heads around some of this today, but deep in the Southern white psyche was now a kind of social psychology that said uh, black men were a threat to white womanhood. Now that's rooted in some very old ideas here, some very old notions, uh, some ugly old notions. Uh, But it explodes in the late 80s and particularly around 1890. Now, why at that time did it explode? There's a, a roiling increase of fear, not just in the South, because some lynchings occurred in the North as well, and out West, California had lynchings. A roiling fear that American society was growing out of control. And as we've recently
0: seen again, immigration at that time european and mediterranean and jewish immigration seemed to inflame racial tensions and
1: fears and the growth of american cities these these darkening cities with with all kinds of now roiling labor unrest this is the first great age of labor versus capital the the tremendous railroad strikes of 1877 struck fear into the country. That if you don't get control of the masses, if you don't get control of workers, if you don't get control of the former slaves, American society was just going out of control. So this boils over yes. into a wave of lynching. It does. A wave of lynching that uh, law enforcement, such as it was in the South well, put it bluntly, winked at or even participated in, that the best way to control black communities was once in a while uh, to have to kill one of their black
5: men. You're listening to a documentary about activist and journalist Ida B. Wells, produced by David Freudberg of Humankind Media. Hear more documentaries at humanmedia.org. Remember, it's membership drive time. Show your support to KABU at kabu.fm give. And now, back to Ida B. Wells' Battle to Uncover the Truth. Warning, this documentary contains disturbing, sensitive, historical content.
0: Since the Civil War ended in 1865, America has witnessed several surges of white supremacist terrorism against African Americans, including hangings, burnings, and other acts that shocked the conscience. Ida Wells began her reporting on these incidents in the 1890s.
7: She was not uh, holding back. Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative. She was going to identify all the ways in which uh, black uh, people, women and men were being victimized were being terrorized she spoke to the complacency of government and law enforcement she spoke to the abdication of the rule of law and uh, really tried to compel people to accept and to recognize their responsibility in this crisis for that she was obviously targeted and herself uh, the object of a lot of threat and
0: menace but Ida Wells stood her ground. She maintained a mix of public interest journalism and political activism, despite the evident hazards of shining a spotlight on the forces of violence. Her biographer, Paula Giddings.
6: As soon as she started writing anti lynching editorials, um, she says herself in her autobiography that she bought a pistol. Thinking that people are going to going to kill her, try to kill her, and she said, "Well, if I go, somebody's going to go with me." That was her her attitude. She, uh, so she was no shrinking violet. Not 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 at all. Uh, and of course, there was a an editorial that she wrote in the in May of 1892, uh, which uh, w- was published when she wasn't in town. She wrote it. Uh, just before a long planned trip east so uh, she
0: was about 30 years old she at this
6: was 30 point. years old in 1892 uh, going east to a conference or aME church conference uh, and so she publishes this editorial and leaves but she goes to New York where uh, she's met by T Thomas fortune who is the leading black newspaper man newspaperman in the country at this point uh, with his newspaper out of New York the New York age. And she meets him at the tra- train station, and he says, Well, we've been trying to get you here for some time, Miss Wells, and now that you're here, you're going to have to stay. And she says, what are you talking about? He says, oh, you haven't heard. Well, they have destroyed in Memphis after the publication of the editorial. They have destroyed her newspaper office. They have run her business partner out of town. She has heard now that they're also planning to, they're waiting for her to come back so that they can lynch her. Wow. And she actually debates whether she should go back or not. But in fact, there is a, a sort of a, a every southern town had these kind of militia fraternal mm-hmm. groups, and there was a black group there, to which one of the men who were lynched actually belonged to, uh, and she got word that if she came back, that they would protect her. Uh, but she in but, in Memphis in Memphis, but she decided. She said going back would just mean more bloodshed and as she says and more widows she said no i'm not i'm not going to do it so uh, so she's so she's now in exile and she won't have another trip back to the south in, in decades in
0: 1892 she wrote another editorial the truth about lynching which was the first major study on the subject Ida Wells signed her article using only the name Exiled.
6: As a culmination of all of her investigative work from the New York age, at this point she has national attention. And international attention. The following year, she'll take uh, she'll be invited to uh, the British Isles to take the anti-lynching campaign there. Where she met with great receptivity. Particularly after a second trip, yeah. um, uh, she really wins the hearts over of uh, important Brits, including people like the Archbishop of Canterbury and royalty and, and newspaper journalists and editors and the activist uh, groups women's activist groups and uh, others there, and all the reforms, a great deal of reform going uh, in uh, Great Britain uh, at this time.
3: We claim to be a highly civilized and Christian country.
0: 19th century American abolitionist
3: Frederick Douglass. I will not stop to deny this claim, yet I fearlessly affirm that there is nothing in the history of savages to surpass the blood-chilling horrors and fiendish excesses perpetuated against the colored people of this country by the so-called enlightened and Christian people of the South. It is commonly thought that only the lowest and most disgusting birds and beasts, such as buzzards, vultures, and hyenas will gloat over and prey upon dead bodies. But the southern mob, in its rage, feeds its vengeance by shooting, stabbing, and burning their victims when they are dead.
1: Lynching had, had broken out by then, uh, all over the south, and to some degree even in the north, at the rate of two to 300 a year. It's all over the press. Historian David Blight wrote the
0: Pulitzer Prize-winning biography Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom. Uh,
1: It was this hideous, incredibly depressing issue. Uh, He was also under the influence of Ida B. Wells. Douglass and Ida Wells had a kind of almost father-daughter or grandfather-daughter relationship. Both, you know, activists of their own kind of uh, ferocious sense, but she prodded Douglas as well. He didn't have to be ultimately prodded, but she prodded him to take up this issue, take up this question.
0: Douglas delivered an impassioned oration against lynching entitled, Why is the Negro Lynched?
3: Put away your race prejudices, banish the idea that one class must rule over another. Recognize the fact that the rights of the humblest citizens are as worthy of protection as are those of the highest, and your problem will be solved.
1: He wrote the first draft of that speech while he was still in Chicago. He then gave it in the Midwest in the fall of 1893 after the Chicago Exposition was over, and then he kept drafting and drafting it, and throughout 1894 which is the last full year of his life. He gave it all over the country under the title, Lessons of the Hour.
3: And whatever may be in store for you in the future, whether the prosperity or adversity, whether there shall be peace or war, based upon the eternal principles of truth, justice, and humanity, with no class having cause for complaint or grievance, your republic will stand and flourish forever.
0: Following Frederick Douglass's death, Ida B. Wells continued her crusade against lynching, a flashpoint occurred three years later in 1898. Frazier Baker, the first African-American postmaster of Lake City, South Carolina, was murdered along with his infant daughter by white terrorists. Ida Wells demands a response. Paula Giddings.
6: She uh, will lead a delegation of congresspersons uh, and pastors to Washington, to the White House, to see President McKinley, to demand that he do something
0: about this. Because the post office that he led was a federal facility.
6: Absolutely. And this was a very large, of course, a larger issue. There are so many blacks being appointed by the federal government. Uh, McKinley is impressed uh, and he, he indeed uh, begins to he does send out federal investigators uh, to uh, South Carolina. Uh, and uh, over a period of time there are there, a good number of people are indicted for the murder, but the jury trial, but, but none of them are found guilty in the, in the end.
0: Ida Wells would maintain her activist journalism and go on to raise four children. She became a fervent woman suffragist, helped to found the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and established social services for the black community in Chicago, where she ultimately resettled in her final decades. Ida Wells Barnett passed away from kidney complications in 1931 at age 69. Her enterprising spirit lives on in the work of a new generation of journalists, like Nicole Hannah Jones at the New York Times.
4: When her great-grandson said that she didn't suffer fools, I was like, yeah, that sounds like myself. so, I, yeah, I, I think about her a lot, and I really do think she guides my work, because she had such a strong sense of what was right and what was wrong. And what I also loved about her, she was not going to separate herself from the less educated and the poor amongst her people in a way that a lot of folks, when they get some prominence, they do. And I think that's always been the model. Um, so clearly, that's why my Twitter name is Ida Bay Wells, in honor of her. Um <laughs>
0: Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston. This special documentary project is supported by the Humankind Program Fund.
5: You've just heard Ida B. Wells' Battle to Uncover the Truth, produced by David Freudberg of Humankind Media. Hear more documentaries at humanmedia.org. That's it for this studio presentation of Stage & Studio. You can always hear our shows at stageandstudio.org or kbu.fm slash stageandstudio. And subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Like us on facebook.com slash stage, the letter N, studio. Till next time, I'm Dime Roberts. We're going out with more music by David Ornette Cherry at davidornettcherry.com.
6: This is your lucky day. You have the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to pay amazingly high prices for some incredibly
7: worthless stuff. Just keep listening, and we'll tell you over and over and over and over and over and over and
8: over and Aren't you glad this is KBOO? KBOO Portland 90.7 FM. Non-commercial.
7: Over and over over
5: join KABU Radio on Wednesday, February 24th, 2021 at 6.30 p.m. for a special program, BAM, Chicago's Black Arts Movement. Participants will receive an exclusive link to view the film, BAM, Chicago's Black Arts Movement, and then participate in an online panel discussion with the filmmakers and leaders of Chicago's Black Arts Movement. You can find more information about this KBOO benefit on the KBOO website, KBOO.fm. Andy Woho looks
6: a scream, hang him on the wall. Andy Woho's full of scream, can't tell them apart
4: at all.
2: You are listening to KBOO 90.7 FM, Portland, Oregon. 104.3 FM in Corvallis, and 91.9 FM in Hood River. This is Art Focus, and I am Aurora Josephson, presenting a third in a series of studio visits during the pandemic. My central questions for artists during the visit are what are you up to now? What is it that inspires you to make art during the time of COVID-19? And how, if at all, has COVID changed the art-making process for you? My guest today, Alexander R. Lilly, attended the Pacific Northwest College of Art when it was located at the Portland Art Museum. He studied under the printmakers Tom Prochaska and Gordon Gilkey, and has been an artist and activist residing in Old Town Portland for more than 20 years. I completed several studio visits with Alex and even received a demo at his blacksmithing shop which unfortunately was lost due to cell phone interference on his building and which is also the reason why we did not record at the studio. The following is Alex reading a poem he wrote. Following that is an interview I conducted with Alex, our fourth and final attempt. And following that, finally, is music from Alex's band, which was inspired by the demonstration series, photos and paintings mentioned in the interview.
7: Pyrosis. I walk slow past a meaningless future. A remembrance bell rings for what it was like in the era of the plague. Not alive, but also not dead. A virus blows on the wind effluvia through a downtown corridor. Blood-piled shadow streets. Vacant buildings boarded up. Passers-by, afraid of